Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Everyday Eternal. We've got a bit of a skeleton crew today. It's just me, Sam Craven, and my partner from the north. Hi, I'm Matt Pavlik. Today we're going to be doing another episode about a specific archetype. We'll be focusing on mid-range today. We know it's been grinding out recently in all the major tournaments, so we'll be discussing what it is and how you can beat it. But first... Well, let's talk about recent Star City results. Uh, we've got Cincinnati and Philadelphia since we last recorded. Uh, let's do Cincinnati first. First place was a Grixis Delver list, which is uh, particularly interesting because it's got four young Pyromancer. Matt, I know you've got a lot that you wanted to say about this. I think this is a really, quote-unquote, interesting deck list. I know people have been trying to break young Pyromancer for... You know, the last however many months it's been out, and or at least spoiled. And I think this this deck is really interesting. Uh, I know I was playing Grixis Delver kind of back maybe about two years ago. I was running Dark Confidants, I was running Stifles, but I was running uh, Phyrexian Dreadnoughts at the time. And that deck never felt quite right, because you didn't really have a solid game plan, because you would want to like stifle their stuff, but I want to save my Stifles for my Dreadnoughts. This deck feels pretty coherent. Um... Play a lot of cheap spells, or free spells, make a bunch of 1-1s, kill my opponent. Um, there's not a lot of sweep in the format. Uh, nobody has built a deck, uh, a red control deck with Pyroclasm. Uh, I mean, there's Terminus, there's Engineer Explosives sometimes, but making a bunch of 1-1s is pretty good. So I think this... I, I mean, the reason why this deck won is probably because it just came out of left field, nobody was expecting it. And bam, suddenly all these 1-1s just get up and kill you. Uh, bonfire the damage in the board. Very interesting. I thought it was a really bad inclusion, because I thought it was all creatures. And then I read the card. I don't play standard, so I, I've never really seen this card much. But uh, seemed seems interesting. Uh, taxing Probe uh, in a tempo deck like this. Good for information. Your cantrip. You make a guy. The only thing I really don't like about this deck is uh, if... My opponent is playing Caltrops. It's very hard to win. Well, you know, that is a really popular card in the format right now, so I'd imagine that is a big problem for you uh, if you're trying to play this deck. Caltrops control is is just brutal for this deck. Well, and the one thing I think is really uh, nice about this deck is just looking through the list, it's got 11 free spells, and then almost everything is a one-drop, meaning that you're going to be flipping your Delvers and you're going to be making a ton of dudes with Pyromancer. And your Dark Confidant won't get up and kill you when you flip a Dark Steel Colossus. That doesn't happen. Another thing I really like, it's got Cabal Therapy on the side with Jutaxian Probe. That's just excellent when you're making tons of dudes. And two Baleful Stricks on the sideboard, which is Doomblade that draws a card and attacks if they don't have any guys. And remember, I mean, you get to play the uh, the Grixis color scheme, which means that you are able to gain advantage off of Parish, whereas most decks aren't. At least all the tempo decks are usually running green now, so I mean... Or at least the some of them are running green, if they're running black as well. So then, looking at the second place list from this tournament, we have... Dun -dun -dun -dun, Painted Stone. Some of you will recall that this is a deck that we've been saying for a while is pretty good in the format right now. Um, first thing I wanted to point out is we talked about some decks that play control as well as other archetypes. This is definitely a deck that plays control and combo. For the most part, you're going to see people try to lock out the game and then get the combo online. If they don't have it in their hand opening turn, they're just going to try and lock you out of the game. 
Um, we can't help but say we told you so about Blood Moon being just amazing in this deck. Um, and you see, you see people losing to this uh, on camera a lot because of the Blood Moon. There was a, I think it was in, uh, in Cincy where there was on uh, camera, a guy went turn one Blood Moon and the other person just conceded. Because there's no point in playing it out when Shardless Bug had no basics. And I've been finding the Shardless Bug matchup to be really fun because no basics mean Blood Moon just wins the game. Yeah, and I mean, this deck is reliably putting out a turn one Blood Moon. So a lot of the decks, like a Stax-type deck, would usually be running uh, Chromox as their, like, acceleration piece or Mox Diamond or something like that. So you can have three mana on turn one with your Soul Land, like, you know, Ancient Tomb or City of Traders. This deck is actually running uh, a better card for this deck, uh, Simeon Spirit Guide, which means you're you're quite reliably going to get three mana on turn one, which means if you have the Blood Moon in hand, you're going to get to gank your opponent pretty hard. Um, what does this mean? We fucking told you so. <laughs> I'm sorry. It means but play like, basic lands. It means play enough basic lands so that you can hit them. Now, I mean, even playing a deck, I know, with, say, five or seven basic lands. I was This happened to me uh, on Thursday. I run a deck with seven basic lands that we'll talk about later, and I got Blood Moon on turn three against Miracles, and it was quite the uphill climb just because of the fact of I already had one basic, but I didn't hit all the other ones because they were sitting in a pile at the bottom of my deck. And your fetch lands were now mountains. Correct. So it was pretty shitty. So anyway, so what is Painter's Stone or uh, quote-unquote the Painter deck? Well, it's a deck that, if you guys haven't been playing Legacy for quite a long time, this deck was popular, I guess, probably about four years ago? Um, Maybe even a little bit sooner than that, just due to... Oh yeah, it might have been popular during the Mental Misstep era, or right before the Mental Misstep era. I remember a friend of mine was playing it. Uh, But it was running a blue-red version, just due to the fact that Imperial Recruiter cost infinite money and nobody had them. And so, on that note, real quick, I think that's the reason why you're saying it is uh, to give an example. Imperial Recruiter, the original on Star City, is two fifty right now, but the Judge Foil can be got for under a hundred dollars. And I think that's part of the reason you're seeing this deck more is now that this deck is affordable to play. I mean, right now, Imperial Recruiters on eBay slash you know modal or whatever are going to cost you probably about two hundred and eighty dollars a set. So I mean, I mean that's at least that's only two dual Yeah, that's pretty affordable for, I would say, some of the legacy community. Or if you and your friends got together and each bought an Imperial Recruiter, all of a sudden, hey, one of you can play Painter Servant at a time. Anyway, deck construction. The deck is basically based around Painter Servant plus Grindstone. So what happens is Painter Servant comes into play, you choose a color, every card everywhere is that color in addition to its other colors. So Grindstone basically says, hey, if you mill the top two cards of the library and they share the same color, keep repeating. So basically what happens is you mill their entire deck into their graveyard. So how do you get around this? Just generally, you would have to kill the Painter Servant in response to the Grindstone activation. So that removes the everything being the same color clause, and then it'll just grind normally. So you could get milled you know, for two, four, six, whatever amount of cards, but that's just based on the order of your um, of your library. 
One of the really good things against uh, Painter's Servant that I always do is bring in my Red Blasts because almost everybody playing uh, Painter's Servant is going to be naming Blue because they have a bunch of Red Blasts. But their Red Blasts are now Blue cards. So even though Red Blast doesn't naturally hit anything in their deck, once they've played Painter's Servant, Red Blast hits everything. Another thing to keep in mind is that because all your cards are blue, you can now pitch Island to Force of Will if you want to. Which is actually very important. Um, recall, you know, if you have... Say they play a Blood Moon afterwards. I mean, again, your deck, assuming that you are playing kind of something within the normal spectrum of Legacy, might die to a Blood Moon. Well, now your Force of Wills are even more needed than ever. Uh, also, just watch out for the quote-unquote Monkey Blast, which I actually hadn't heard the term for this until... Uh, a friend of mine came up from the States and won a tournament I hosted and took all of my dual lands uh, with this lovely painter deck and just crushed everyone with it when XO. Uh, so basically, the painter deck is completely tapped out. You expect to be able to play anything you want to because, you know, hey, it's a mono-red deck. And instead, they pitch Simeon Spirit Guide to cast one of their blasts and just gank you. And that's no fun. I'm just saying. It's Red Force of Will and it only costs about 30 cents. Correct. And there's nothing more satisfying than, like, revised Red Elemental Blast countering your whatever. Feels good. Real quick, some other interesting results from the recent Star Cities. Uh, multiple Loam decks uh, recently, which is just interesting to me. I like the Loam engine. I think it's fun and interesting. Um, other than that, uh, Delver is playing lots and lots of colors now. And Deathblade, sort of, but with red, saw uh, a little bit of play in Philadelphia. And as we've seen over the last, say, like four months, Charlotte's Bug is actually still the best performing deck in the format, globally. Uh, a friend of mine was running some numbers, and it has, like, a ton of top eight finishes. It's, it's a really good deck, it's really stable. However, it dies to Blood Moon. So... Is that the only thing it dies to? No, but we'll be discussing that later. One last point before we move on from Painted Stone, because a lot of people were like, oh, now they're like shitting the bed thinking, I don't know how to beat this, I can't beat a Blood Moon, what's going on, ba da 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 Okay, let's break it down. Decks have been cutting Force of Will over the last little bit, because, hey, you're like a mid-range matchup, I don't want my Force of Will's main, you know... I don't need these. If it's a combo matchup, I'll try my best game one, bring in the Force of Wills game two, hey, we're good to go. No. You need to be bringing in Force of Will again to counter Blood Moon if your deck does in fact pack up and lose to a resolved Blood Moon. Uh, you need to be playing more basic lands. So any so playing zero is probably a very bad idea. Sam, would you agree? Zero basic lands? Zero basic lands. Every time I've played against it, I bring in Blood Moon and it's always good. Okay, so from this empirical evidence we have here, uh, of all these games that we've all played, please play at least one of each of your main basics that you need to function. Uh, so if you're, say, a BGX deck, you should at least be playing Forced Swamp, if, if nothing else. Um, preferably, you should be playing five basics. Decks that are playing five basics aren't crying as much to Blood Moon. They can execute their game plan through Blood Moon. And 
this deck without the Blood Moon is just a bunch of dirtily like X ones that do don't do a whole lot. I mean, yeah, sure they have a tutor to go get their combo, but I mean, if you're actually on the I can play all of my cards plan, you're probably going to do okay against this deck. Uh, another thing you can do is also, I mean, Deathrite Shaman under a Blood Moon, not so good. You run out of lands. It just it's going to happen. So if your deck, say like Maverick, switching back to Noble Hierarch might be a better idea. Because it's going to continually tap for mana whenever you want to until they say Lightning Bolted or whatever. Um, also packing Spell Pierce. Uh, so if you're on the play, you know, you leave up your uh, you leave up an Uncracked Fetch, you fetch Island, you Spell Pierce their Blood Moon, and then you continue as normal. Uh, misdirection. So... Misdirection, you've been seeing it as like a one to two of in a lot of decks to be, you know, oh, the hymn to Torok, you know, I want to be able to, you know, bounce back at them, whatever. Misdirection says, uh, change the target of target's spell or ability. I just want to make sure, Sam, yes, right? Yes. Okay. Because uh, I, I could be thinking of divert as well, and I don't want to be like, uh, and screw up. However, misdirection. You can misdirect their grinding. And then they lose. And that would feel very good. Uh, also, too, if you have Academy Ruins, uh, if they grind you, you put things back on top, hey, you never lose. Uh, if you have Greens and Zenith as well, if you can if you can somehow... Ze- I guess you... Depending no, on when that would require Greens and Zenith to be an instant. Yeah. Or I guess it would depend on when they grind, but then they just get you anyway. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> um, no, in general, basically, you want to be fetching basics... You want to kill their painter servant in response. Also, too, for all those miracles players out there, humility does not answer the painting ability of painter servant. Humility layer happens uh, after the painter servant uh, painting layer. So, so humility you... is uh, now blue. Yeah. So humility is blue, and they and have a one-one painter servant that still paints things. Correct. He's a very good painting servant. He's very reliable. Oh, that was so bad. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, yes, it was. Um, on okay. To- oh, oh, but no, no. But, but we need a segue into the into the spoilers. So another card that you could use to counter Blood Moon is what? Swan Song. Or, as we are calling it on this podcast, a flock of seagulls. Because who doesn't love the flock of seagulls? I love a flock of seagulls. That hair, man. That hair. I know. So, let's talk about the Theros spoilers. Sam, do you want to start us off? Uh, the first one, just want to make mention of, Thoughtseize. Lots of people were whining and complaining that they didn't have a Thoughtseize, and now Thoughtseize is here, and I'm sure it will be quite cheap once the set starts getting opened. Uh, personally, I don't like the art. I'll be keeping my Lorman Thoughtseizes, but it's there. Just thought we'd mention it. So now I'm pretty sure the only reason why they didn't print this in Modern Masters is A, they needed a really good card to have in Theros so people would open it, which is fair. B, Modern Masters didn't come in Russian foil. Ah, so However, yeah, I guess now you can get Russian foils and they won't be like $10,000 a card. Exactly. So I'll let you continue, Sam. Uh, the next one, probably the one that's getting the most discussion in the uh, Eternal for- uh, forums right now, is Swan Song, which we've been talking about. Um, a lot of people say that it's bad because it doesn't counter everything like Spell Pierce does. Um, I, pr- I am on the other side of that argument. Um, first off, if Envelop could see play in sideboards then I think this could definitely see play. Uh, Envelope saw play to counter, purely to counter show and tell, just about. And 
really counting, countering show and tell and some other stuff and giving them a 2-2 in the decks that are playing Envelop seems fine to me. Um, another thing that is very important, it is a non-conditional counterspell. This is not Spell Pierce where they can just tap a couple more lands and keep playing. It's, nope, you are done. You get, this, you get a swan and nothing else. Uh, the other place where it's particularly interesting, I think it could see some play in uh, Vintage, simply because it gives your opponent a dude when you have Oath of Druids, which is always positive. And I mean, countering Ancestral Recall is also, like, seems fine. Like, oops, countering Ancestral Recall, go off with Oath of Druids, getcha. I mean, even though it's a very specific set of circumstances in which you're countering, so you're countering an instant, you're countering a sorcery, you're countering an enchantment. So let's look at Legacy. I mean, on the stack interactions, we've seen a move over the last, say, you know, the length of Legacy from hard counters, like Force of Will, to a move to hard counters and some soft counters, for example, like Daze, Spell Pierce, and even Flusterstorm is in some ways a conditional counter. I mean, if you draw your Flusterstorm, you might just use it as a Spell Pierce at times, right? I mean, it, it does happen. I know for sure that I've used it as a Spell Pierce, that a better Spell Pierce in some situations. So having, having a one-mana card that actually is a Force of Will, for all intents and purposes in the counter war, seems perfectly acceptable. And one area where it's particularly strong is, is that it's countering almost every single spell that Miracles is playing. And it's countering the one that you're really worried about, which is Counterbalance. And one mana to kill Counterbalance, pretty good. Even giving them a 2-2, I mean, as the deck, as the tempo deck, sure, it kind of screws up your Delver plan. So I would agree that it maybe in, say, Rugged Delver, it wouldn't be the best card. But it might be something worth looking into. Personally, I think this card is going to find a home in decks that are maybe really bad against, say, Show and Tell, really die to cards like Moat or Humility or whatever, and they just want to get their stuff on the table. And you know what? If the other, the other team gets a 2-2, you know, power to them. Acceptable losses. They, yeah, or maybe they can't run Force of Will. Maybe my blue count is at 16. And, you know, I'm kind of hedging my bets... You know, I'm running some conditional counters like Spell Pierce, and maybe Swan Song is going to be in addition to that, or in the sideboard, or what have you. It's still good against Storm, remember? I mean, it's still going to be hitting their Infernal Tutors, their Past in Flames. That's all going to happen, and their 2-2 is not going to do anything. Yeah, maybe they'll get an extra Cabal Therapy, but I don't think that's going to be relevant in that matchup. I'm personally thinking I'm going to be using it in a deck with Punishing Fires, just because of the fact of that 2-2 isn't going to matter because I have Punishing Fires. Yeah, you'll just be spending a, one extra mana. It will be blue and red over time to counter their spell, essentially. And I get to say, I, I get to hum, I ran. <laughs> yes, you did run so far away. I, I think it's an interesting card. I don't know if it will see much main deck play, but I think it will certainly see play in sideboards. I would agree. Uh, some other cards that we're just interested in. Again, we don't know whether or not these are going to find homes. Just uh, interesting ones to consider. Uh, Spellheart Chimera. It's one, a blue, and a red. It has Flying and Trample. It has a three-butt, and its power is equal to the number of instants and sorceries in your graveyard. Uh, obviously, not so great with a lot of uh, graveyard hate in the format, but I think it could t potentially see play in another deck like this Grixis Delver deck, where... Every time you uh, play an instant or sorcery, you're growing, uh, you're growing your Spellheart Chimera, and you're getting an extra guy for your young Pyromancer. 
and it allows you to be both have a fatty and have a lot of dudes. So either they can block your fatty and their blocker dies, or they can block a 1-1 and take a lot of damage. I just think it's a card that we'll see, maybe not a 4 of, but 2 or 3 to uh, to be, represent a bigger threat than Young Pyromancer can represent. I definitely agree. I mean, in a deck like the Young Pyromancer deck, I mean, this card is going to be like a 4-3 pretty much all the time. I mean, even with probably an active death ray shaman on the other side of the board, like, 3-3, three, 4-3 three, three is probably where you're going to be. And the fact that it has trample is, I mean, you're not you're not chumping, chump blocking this thing with, like, tokens of any kind. I mean, this thing's actually getting through. So I think maybe playing this card as a 2 of might be interesting to test in that deck. Um, maybe it's above curve. I don't know. Yeah, 3 is a little high in that deck, Yeah, but I think if it's going to find a home, it's going to be in a deck like that that's playing spells to grow out all their other guys. Almost as if there's some sort of uh, archetype around growing your guys. I, I don't know, if, has there ever been an archetype that grows your guys? I, ha, I'm just ha, not Sam? sure about that. You know, I bet Steven Meninian would be a perfect person to ask about that. I don't know, we should, we should find out, or you guys can, he's probably got some internet contact information that you can probably uh, it's, find out. He might have a, a PDF that he's put out about that on our host, Eternal Central. Really? Do you think he has that? I think he does. Okay. Well, we'll look into that, because we'll investigate, because I'm not sure. Alright, we've got a couple more. Um, this is another one that I'm interested in. Uh, Thassa, God of the Sea, is one of the gods that is has every super type known to man. It's a uh, It costs two and a blue. It is a legendary enchantment creature God, it has three super types. It's indestructible. As long as your devotion to blue is less than five, it isn't a creature. Meaning, if you have less than five blue mana symbols in play, it's not a creature. At the beginning of your upkeep, scry one. Uh, and then for one and a blue, target creature you control can't be blocked this turn. And it's a 5-5 five five when it's a creature. I think this could potentially find a home in Merfolk. Uh, they played Merfolk Sovereign for quite a long time. This has the Merfolk Sovereign ability but for mana instead of tapping. Additionally, the Scry 1 is definitely relevant in Merfolk because they don't have a lot of card control to decide what they're going to be drawing. And filtering out the top of your deck, I think it could be very, very powerful in a Merfolk deck, being able to get your counters when you need them or your lords when you need them instead. Yeah, the thing that I found about Merfolk, at least, I mean, the reason why it seems to be not doing so well as of late, I mean, it plays a bunch of guys which is great. Uh, you don't run any cantrips, though. And you have, you know, some counters. So, I mean, you're hoping that you get kind of the right mix of, like, counters and guys, and you get there. Great. But there's been quite a few times where you just shit all over merfolk because they're like, oops, I have too many guys, or I flooded because I don't have any brainstorms. And no, don't put brainstorm in merfolk. Just, no. No, no please don't. Because I've seen it. And it's just, it's not right for that deck. But I think Thassa, also to being a 5-5, five five, like... Being a 5-5 five five is very good. Being indestructible is very good, because that means the only way they're getting rid of it is with the Swords of Plowshares. And do you really mind gaining 5 life in Merfolk? And plus, it's not just that. It's, it's a conditional... It has to be Swords of Plowshares when it has already become a creature. Not when you've just decided to gain value off of scrying every turn and, like, getting your guy through. I mean, it won't always be a 5-5. Five five. It'll very often be a 5-5, five five, but, you know. 
Yeah, in a, in a deck always... that's playing a lot of double blue, I expect that by the time you play this on your third or fourth turn, you should be very close to having five devotion. And the thing is, I could also see this card seeing play in perhaps a blue control deck, where you know maybe your devotion doesn't get up there until a little bit later in the game, so you control the game. Maybe you have some man lands that you want to swing through. You know, maybe there's a Mishra's factory that's like maybe in like a land getting... still type of deck. Yeah. I mean, and then maybe near the end of the game, you're like, oops, I'm a 5-5 five five that, you know, I just get through. So, I mean, I could see this, it's it's an interesting kind of, instead of, say, playing a Planeswalker, playing this to be able to just, like, scry every turn, seems, seems interesting as well. All right, and the last card we wanted to talk about, um, again, one we don't know if this will find a home, is Unknown Shores. It's a land at common. It does not come into play tapped, so already we're doing okay. It taps to add one colorless, or one in tap to add one mana of any color to your mana pool. So it's kind of a bad filter land, but it has every single color on it. Yeah, so I think probably in like EDH or Popper or whatever, I mean, this is going to be pretty decent in Legacy. Nah. I think uh, maybe Modern, uh, and certainly I would assume that this would see play in Standard because... Uh, they like to play lots of colors right now. Oh. That they do. Interesting. And at common, there will be a lot of these floating around. Hooray for everyone, apparently. <laughs> All right, on to our main topic of the day, mid-range. So, as you guys have heard, so the last episode was on control, or I guess two episodes ago now, was on control... And the episode before that, episode 7, was talking about Storm. So basically, we wanted to talk about mid-range as well. We were hoping that everybody would be here for this cast, because, you know, I mean, we're all... I mean, at least three of us play mid-range often enough, and Sam, you're a dirty control player most of the time, so... Get fucked. <laughs> so we basically wanted to talk about mid-range, what what a mid-range deck is, you know, what what the strategy is, the decks and the format you know, why they, there's been kind of a quote-unquote sudden resurgence in the popularity of the mid-range deck. So, I mean, looking at the last kind of year of Star City Games results, we'll see that, you know, there were mid-range decks before, but now with the printing of Abrupt Decay and Deathrite Shaman, you really have answers to... You have unconditional answers to a lot of stuff, and you have main deck hate for a lot of stuff. So, you'll notice even decks like Dark Maverick has been coming up, and you'll see... Uh, bug, and junk, and jund, well, and even the I think decks. the real would... face of this most recently has been the Deathblade decks are an excellent example of what it means to be a mid-range deck. Well, I hate Dirty Deathblade. I agree, so... I hate Dirty Deathblade too, but it, I think it's a strong example of what exactly you're doing. And it's interesting because essentially what they've done is they've taken Stoneblade and they've moved from being a out-and-out control deck to, man, I hope everybody's ready for buzzword bingo but they're trying to grind out incremental advantage over time to slowly wear you down. Oh, that sentence made me cringe. But yes, it's true. For value. Oh, oh. The point is, a lot of these decks are actually have moved from a very kind of a passive mid-range deck that's kind of been sitting around doing nothing and therefore didn't those decks didn't have a lot of success in the past to a much more proactive game plan. So the Deathblade deck is a proactive version of the Esper deck. So the Esper deck was sitting around a lot of time. It had a lot of answers, which was fine, but when you didn't get that particular set of answers, you just died. 
And so the move to Deathblade basically meant that, like, I get to be proactive by playing, you know, Hand Disruption, and I play Deathrite Shaman, and I play, you know, some decks are playing Abrupt Decay. Um, I get to play all the cards I want to, I get to have answers, but I get to have a lot of proactive stuff that also makes my opponent kind of go, oh, I need to answer this, this, and this, otherwise I'm probably just going to die. So what is a mid-range deck, kind of, in general? So we talked about what a control deck was, kind of like in a sentence or two. Uh, what a combo deck is trying to do. So, Sam, if you had to say, like, in maybe, like, a sentence or three, what is a mid-range deck? Well, and like you said, not being a mid-range player, this my take on it will be a little different. But I think that uh, <clears throat> my buzzword-laden way of putting it is pretty close to how I feel about it, is that it's just trying to, over time, get ahead of you. And it's not looking to uh, to, to play the control on the stack game. They are looking to, over time, just wear you down and then finally kill you. And similar in some ways to how many control decks work, but they're doing it with creatures and hate rather than countering things or making things cost too much. Yeah, so I would say my my representation of what a mid-range deck, being almost exclusively a mid-range player, is just about the same. So I would say like a control deck usually has, say, like a long-term advantage engine that it's using to kind of win the game, and usually a control deck will have to, you know, quote-unquote, stabilize at some point. So, like, a Miracles deck is going to be, you know, trying to take over the game at turn, you know, 10 with the counterbalance top engine and, you know, your stack-based control and your giant X for ones. So, mid-range is more about, you know, turns, say, 3 through 8 controlling the game kind of in that stage and taking over, not necessarily having a a long-term engine going on. Like, you probably don't have the Loam... I would say, like, a Life from the Loam deck, like 43 Lands or Aggro Loam is more of a control deck. Same with Counterbalance Top. So, so getting your incremental value. So, even just having a card like Abrupt Decay. It's a removal piece, it's a one-for-one, one, but you're for sure getting rid of that threat. It's it's gone. You know, you're him to talk. Two for one. But you're not getting your terminus where you're getting, like, maybe you're getting your seven. And in a deck like Shardless Bug, you might be doing something like playing Shardless Agent, cascading into your him to Turok, and now you've got a body on the field, and they're down two cards. Yeah, so, I mean, as good as that is, it's not going to necessarily ever be as good as, you know... I just cast, you know, Pernicious Deed against my affinity opponent and 15 for one them. <laughs> and, th- and there's nothing wrong with this. It's just, it's you, you're just deciding how you play your game. And I think controlling through turns, you're kind of surviving the first three turns. Kind of, you want to be stabilizing your mana base. And then kind of you lead off from there. As opposed to, say, an aggro deck, which is going to be like, okay, turn one, I'm, I'm doing something. And as an example of that, in a lot of these mid-range decks, you'll see the turn one play is generally going to be something like Noble Hierarch or Deathrite Shaman that's going to help them have better uh, mana options later in the game. Also, it represents a threat, but for the most part, what they want to use it for earlier tends to be that the option to tap for whatever color they want and to tap for three on turn two. Uh, Liliana the Veil, I hear she's pretty good on turn two. Uh, I can actually prove through, uh, through gameplay evidence that she's actually quite good. Oh, well, that's that's good to know that I'm correct. I know I don't like playing against her, so she must be alright. 
This is quite true. So also, too, I mean, also another, uh, you know, famous play from the mid-range deck on turn one is information. So playing a card like Thoughtseize or Inquisition or Duress, just to gain information. Um, so you're you're also playing the I'm trying to get rid of a card that, you know, might really screw me over, but you're also playing the how am I going to play out the rest of my hand based on the, uh, the A, the deck that you're playing, and B, the cards that you have. I know that a lot of times you really need to be careful on your keep uh, in the games 2 and 3 when you know that they're playing cards like Thoughtseize because uh, you might keep a hand that has one thing that you really want to do in it. And if they open up with a Thoughtseize or a Duress or an Inquisition and they take that, you're just screwed for the rest of the game. So you really need to be careful about how you resolve your mulligans in these games. And maybe, maybe this is unfortunately one of the times where you don't get to do your favorite thing. You know, as much as we all might like to do our favorite thing. Uh, yeah, I really you know, want to go top and then counterbalance on turn one and two, but this is a case where sometimes I don't get to do that because they might take one of those two cards. So, so let's talk about the kind of the the representative archetypes that are in Legacy kind of at this moment. So I'm just kind of kind of list them and then we'll we'll talk about them kind of in depth to make sure you guys kind of know what they're doing. Go through, go through all of them, what their strategy is, and just do a general breakdown so you know what's what. So, main archetypes, I would say Bug, Junk, and Jund are your main kind of mid-range archetypes right now, with Bug being the most highly represented, and Jund kind of lately falling out of favor. I'm, We can talk about that as well, but I mean, it hasn't been putting up as many finishes, but still doing not too bad. What would you say, Sam? Uh, I agree. Jund is definitely not a bad deck. It's just a huge pain in the ass to play against. But I think it might even be part of the reason that they're not doing as well as, say, Bug is doing, is that they do not have the card selection that Bug has, because just having blue is just that good. And one of the reasons why Bug is so strong right now is Shardless Agent for three, get a body, and cascading into Ancestral Recall for zero really good. Uh, Jun doesn't have that option. It's certainly still a very strong deck, but they're doing a lot more of uh, having to rely on whatever happens to be on the top of their deck. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just you need to know that as the Jun player that your selection just go- isn't going to be as good. Therefore, wow, and that, deal with it. And that means that things like if you have a one-of in your deck, there's a strong possibility you will never see it. And you have to design with that in mind. So the the people who are maybe playing the Jun decks with one Sylvan Library, perhaps they should rethink yes. that strategy. Sylvan Library helps you uh, helps find your one ofs, but when it is a one of, you have to find it first. Correct. So let's kind of go over a sample Charlotte's Bug list. So right now I'm kind of looking at the results from the most recent Star City games, and you'll see that throughout most of the lists. You've got, you know, you got your four Shardless Agent, you've got your Tarmogoyfs, you know, you've got your Deathrite Shamans. It's it's kind of the general slew of the black-green base that's kind of come up due to the printing of, you know, Deathrite Shaman and Abrupt Decay. You're just, that's the way it's going to be. And one thing when you look at this deck is uh, all the creatures, the only creature in this deck that does not do more than one thing is Tarmogoyf. Tarmogoyf is like the worst card in the deck, and it's Tarmogoyf. So that should give you an idea of how strong the card selection is in these colors. 
And they've got Baleful Strix, which, like I've said, is Doomblade that draws a card. You've got Charlotte's Agent, which is going to be giving you Abrupt Decay or Brainstorm or Ancestral Vision or Hymn to Turok. Deathrite that's pinging them and getting you mana. And Termogoyf is the only one that doesn't do a whole bunch of stuff. And you know what? It's still going to be beating for five. Yeah, he's only a 5-6, guys. He's not good enough. So the point is, like, you've got your mix of removal, you've got your card selection, you've got your value creatures, and you even have, say in these decks, Jace the Mind Sculptor to finish them off, you have Mails Repulsive Dancer, you have Creeping Tarpets, you have, there's a lot, the Charlotte's Bug deck has a lot of different angles, plus being in bug colors, you have some amazing sideboard options against a slew of decks of the format. For example, the Lotion Thief, oh, as I've always... Gotta apply the Lotion. So then you also have access to, like, Flusterstorms, more Force Wolves out of the board, Submerge, Life from the Loam, you could play uh, Virtue's Ruin or Perish, Massacre, more Baleful Strix. I mean, there's there's a lot of different directions. He's got a Sower of Temptation in here, which is just hilarious oh. against Show and Tell. Oh, God. Or you could play the Swan Song. You could play mm. the Swan Song. Mm, yes. Yeah, their 2-2 their Swan is not going to be as big as your Tormogoyf. I mean, you could you could play. There's a lot. I mean, this particular version also has uh, more thoughtses. There's a GTA in this one, engineered plague, a lot of different options that you could go. A little mix of removal, card selection, information. I mean, ideally, this deck is trying to go say turn one Deathrite Shaman, uh, turn two Shardless Agent into value, turn three play a Planeswalker maybe, you know, keep attacking you, keep the pressure on, remove your stuff. Nothing super back-breaking on its own, but just when mixed together, kind of an attack from all sides. You know, attacking your mana base, attacking your hand, attacking your creatures, slash permanents. And one of the things that's been very strong against me is the ability to attack the hand. And he's playing Jace in the main with uh, Liliana in the side. A lot of people are playing both Jace and Liliana in the main. And when they are brainstorming every turn, and you are discarding cards that's a lot of advantage that they've got over you when you have to discard a card every turn. And even if they're discarding a card every turn, they get to pick the crappiest card in their hand and from the top three, which is a lot stronger, obviously. It also means that they get to search and find for things like if you've got a big guy and their goyf just isn't big enough, oh, well, I'll just brainstorm for something I don't want that badly and discard it simply so that my termogoyf grows. Exactly. I mean, they've got a... They've got so many different lines in this deck, and just having having the ability to, at some point in the future, draw three cards puts them way ahead of you. I mean, if even if they go turn one, suspend Ancestral Vision, you're kind of on the backpedal going, oh fuck, they're going to be drawing four cards at some point in the next little bit. And you have to be able to get ahead enough such that, you know, you're you're playing, you're putting enough pressure on so that those four cards... You know, you hoped they they have to hope that those four cards save them, or otherwise those four cards are just going to crush you. And again, with the cards you see in this deck, when they draw four cards, they're going to draw at least one thing that's relatively relevant. Probably more than one thing. Correct. So, with Bug being this kind of this drawing engine, this cascade, removal, so how are you actually beating this deck? So, Sam, do you have any ideas about how you've been possibly, you know, attacking, like, a mana base? Yeah, that's or... that's been my main go-to. Like I've said, I'm mainly playing Miracles, so uh, the Blood Moon is super, super strong against them. Um, in this list that we've got up, which is uh, Brett Cohen's 14th place list from, uh, from the Legacy Open, he has no basic lands. Obviously super strong against them. 
Um, some other players, I know that we've got some players locally, are playing one or two basic LAN. And uh, a friend of mine was trying to teach someone play, to play Bug, and he was saying that basically, if you know that they have Blood Moon in the deck, you need to either be keeping up Force of Will and a blue card, or you need to be keeping up the mana to Abrupt Decay immediately, which might mean one basic land and a death rite or two death rites, that that needs to just stay untapped at all times because a blood moon is just absolutely killer for a deck like this. And when you combine it with something like in Miracles, rest in peace, meaning that their death rite shamans don't do anything, they're pretty much relying on whatever's already on the board at that point. And also, too, if we look at the this deck's blue count, I mean, we're looking at the... Uh the 14th place list, and they've got 20 blue cards and 3 force of will, which is, which is good. But a lot of the lists are actually really shy on blue cards. I mean, they're not, they're not super into... I mean, they're into blue because it's, it's a bug deck, but, you know, I've seen a lot of lists where you're kind of at that, like, 17, 16, and maybe there's some force of wills, and maybe there aren't, and it's just really awkward. I mean, and when you blood moon them, that's it. I mean, I... I do play Miracles quite often. I would say it's kind of my second deck that I kind of go to right now. And I run two Blood Moons in that deck. Why? Because you're able to play Rest in Peace, you have Sorts of Plowshares, and depending on the version, you might even have Punishing Fires. So, I mean, being able to take out their their Deathrite Shaman and then drop Blood Moon is really good. Plus, I've also been playing some main deck Misdirections. Misdirection, definitely quite good, uh... Getting to steal their uh, Ancestral Recall is nice. So stealing their Ancestral Recall, bouncing back their Hymns of Torok, changing the target of their Abrupt Decay from your Blood Moon or Counterbalance or Rest in Peace back to one of their creatures, very good. Abrupt Decay is basically this deck's go-to against Counterbalance. I mean, a lot of the cards in this deck are 1s and 2s. I mean, there's a few 3s, don't get me wrong, the Shardless Agent, you know, whatever. It's fine. You're not worried about the Shardless Agent. You're worried about whatever card's coming off of it. A lot of the cards are going to be ones and twos. If you can successfully keep Counterbalance on board, somehow protect it, either with Misdirection, Divert, or just cutting off their mana, you're usually going to be good at the control deck. That's their plan against you, is to use Abrupt Decay to circumvent your counters. So one note on Abrupt Decay and Counterbalance. While the Counterbalance trigger does go off, and you can reveal to Counterbalance for Abrupt Decay you're not going to counter it, so you probably don't want to give them the information about what's on top of your deck. Just don't do that. I've seen it far too often just because, you know, as a counterbalance player, you're just like, I'm always going yeah. to reveal. Just I, I understand it, it, but doing that just gives them more information, and in a deck like this, more information is more power. Because then when they're using their cantrips, they can say, hey, this card, no good. Put it back, go take my... Uh, Maelstrom Pulse, or now this is when I want the Hymn to Torok, or whatever. Uh, another point is that um, Stifle is fairly good against this deck. You've got a lot of triggers in here. One of the most important is if you Stifle the last uh, counter coming off of Ancestral Vision, then it has no counter, or rather, you don't counter the uh, Stifle the counter coming off. You Stifle it being able to be played after the counter is removed, and then it just sits in the exile zone doing nothing for the rest of the game. Paying one blue to not allow them to draw three cards, that's fairly strong. Another point on countering things is 
The Shardless Agent you probably don't want to counter. Keep in mind that Cascade is when they cast the spell, not if the spell resolves. So they're going to be flipping things from the top of their deck. And unless you're only at two life, whatever they flip is probably more relevant for you to counter than the Shardless Agent is. And also, too, because I know a lot of people are... I know Miracles is a little bit on the wane. However, Humility does not stop the Cascade. I know this sounds really kind of out there and people are like, what? But it doesn't... No. Remember, it's... Humility only deals with the fact that it's going to be in play. It Enter the battlefield triggers don't happen, yes, but this is when you're casting Charlotte's Agent. Charlotte's Agent isn't in play at the time. So, I'll be honest, I made this mistake. I mean, it was just a little bit of a gloss over on my part. A little bit rusty playing Miracles. A little bit rusty with the Cascade mechanic. And I kind of went, oh yeah, but humility. And my opponent just kind of gave me that look of like, you moron. What are you That's okay, about? I've gotten that look many times. So, don't do that. Also, to counterbalance, revealing zero will counter Ancestral Vision. Yes, counterbalance, players... keeping a land on top is actually relevant in this matchup. So, a lot of people don't realize, they think, oh, the no casting cost, there's a little bit of confusion with newer players who are newer to Legacy. Like, fine, understand, but you should know that zero will flip to them. And that is both when they cascade into it and when they've suspended it and it comes off of suspend. Correct. So, another angle that you could be using to attack this deck is also, you attack the fact that they draw a bunch of cards. So, Chains of Mephistopheles. Oh my god. Uh, pretty good. Uh, Notion Thief. Also pretty good. Uh, I have applied the lotion in response to an Ancestral Vision, and I promptly won the game. Uh, Just saying. Another good option is because they're making you discard a lot of cards, Ensnaring Bridge is probably going to be keeping their at least their Tarmogoyf from attacking. Their Shardless Agent or their Strix will still get through, and their Shaman will still be able to ping you, but you'll be able to stop their big fatty. So yeah, so we talked about what? Blood Moon, Rest in Peace, Stifle, Counterbalance, Chains of Mephistopheles, Notion Thief... Uh, Pyroclasm gets all of their creatures except Goyf as well. Yep, Pyroclasm. You can also use the um, the Supreme Verdict. Engineered Explosives is also quite good. I mean, they play a lot of, like, ones and twos. Uh, sweeping their board is pretty darn good. What else could you use? Control deck. So as the aggro deck. Again, I don't play a lot of aggro. But, I mean, you know, Lightning Bolt kills most of their creatures. I mean, if you're Rug Delver, I mean, you keep... You counter their... Uh, their ancestral visions, you know, you bolt this, bolt that, suddenly your Tarmogoyf is going all the way. Like, that seems pretty good, too. And in a deck like Rug, you have another advantage, which is that while Abrupt Decay does hit every single permanent in your deck, you have so many targets, it's like, okay, they hit my Tarmogoyf, so instead of swinging for 8 this turn, I'm going to swing for 4 this turn. That seems fine. Yeah, and plus you have, like, Nimble Mongoose. Uh, any sort of Shroud creature is going to be good against this deck. I mean, in general, the the deck is very solid. It's very good. It just a lot of people either aren't playing to the weaknesses or aren't specifically boarding for this deck because of the fact that it is such a general. It has so many things that kind of do all of the same thing. There's so many. There's so much selection and removal and draw that you know. What are you specifically targeting to kind of dismantle this deck? And it is a little bit difficult. That's why it's putting up such good numbers. But I think with a little bit of thought, and if you know it's going to be in your meta game, I think. Playing, playing some sort of, not necessarily a piece of hate, but playing cards that you know will be good against a deck that draws a lot of cards are going to be good. 
And another thing I've been doing on the subject of abrupt decay and kind of not caring what it hits is a lot of people have been concerned that counterbalance is no good anymore because abrupt decay gets it. And uh, I've been toying with counterthopters simply because if they, first of all, if they abrupt decay the sword, you don't care at all. After that, you've got so many targets. If they hit one, you just work on your other plan. If they hit your counterbalance, work on the thopter plan. If they hit your thopter foundry, that's fine. Counterbalance will take care of most of the stuff in their deck. And that's just one of the... It's kind of a general thing that works against a lot of decks. Is just overwhelming them with things to do is a very strong plan in this game. I mean, there is no there is no removal piece that I know of that says destroy all permanents with converted mana cost three or less. That's uncounterable for two mana. There's no abrupt decay doesn't kill everything you have. You just need to remember that they only have three to four of them. You can play many many different permanents. And many of them are not playing uh, are not playing Snapcaster anymore, which means that they're they have at most four. When they were playing Snapcaster, they had eight. But without Snapcaster Mage, they only have four abrupt decay, which means they're only going to see two or three a game. So, as any sort of miracles player or whatever, I would say don't fret too much. Maybe run the extra counterbalance. Maybe going up to four right now if you know there's going to be a lot of. Uh, a lot of bug would be a good idea. Run misdirection, or just just flat out just run more permanent based hate just to get them. So I think that's a pretty good discussion of bug. What they're trying to do, how you kind of beat them at their own game. Let's move on to maybe jund. So, to be honest, I don't even have a jund list in the last two weeks that like really did that amazingly well. Yeah, I've got to gonna have to hit the source on this one. Like I mean, that's I mean that's maybe telling. Maybe it's saying that Bug is a little bit better than Jund in a lot of things. And Jund had it had a it had a brief about month where a lot of the uh, the bigger names were playing, and I know Jerry T was playing it for a couple weeks. And it, that's one of those things on a circuit like the Star City circuit. Once a couple people are playing it, that means more people will play it, and that may be why we saw more of it and now aren't seeing as much simply because these few players aren't playing it. Yeah, so the issue is, as well, both decks have the Cascade mechanic, again, getting your kind of incremental advantage. Uh, however, Jund is way better against the... is way better against the Jace kind of control deck than, say, Bug is. So I think with the with the wane in the Jace-based control deck and the move to kind of more mid other mid-range decks, uh, I think Jund has kind of fallen out of favor. So there's a 7th place list from Tarmageddon 8 in the glorious land of... Oh, there's It, it must be Italy. I'm looking at the names yeah. here. And I pulled, we pulled this list off TC Dex just as an example list. And uh, one of the things I'm immediately reminded of looking at this is that a lot of these decks are playing, uh, are playing Dark Confidant, and they're playing it as a 4-of. And while obviously Dark Confidant is a huge threat, they're playing Fort Bloodbraid Elf as well, which means... And they've got... For Liliana, for which Liliana. means that they have a lot of bigger things that are going to be flipping to their bobs, which means that simply attacking their life total as quickly as possible is definitely a viable strategy because at a certain point, they'll want to not have their own Dark Confidant simply because he could kill them. Plus, the bug deck doesn't have to worry about that. The bug deck is no longer really playing Dark Confidant. I haven't seen a lot of lists with Dark Confidant lately. Uh, a friend of mine did go to a fifth place finish in a hundred person tournament, borrowing my Charlotte's Bug deck, which happened, and he managed to make the change of he split Baleful Strix with Dark Confidence. He did well with it. 
However, generally, the the ancestral vision engine costs them no life, and it's enough draw that they don't need the uh, the dark confidant. Exactly. So this deck is basically got the Bloodbird Elf, Dark Confidant, Deathrite Shaman, Tarmogoyf, uh, Abrupt Decay, you know, you've got your Hand Disruption, and Liliana the Veil. So some decks are still running Punishing Fire, some are not. There's there's both good and bad reasons to run both. We'll kind of go through it. So this deck's card advantage engine is primarily Dark Confidant. However, Sylvan Library has also been creeping into lists. I think if you're running a mid-range deck that's not running blue, you have to be running three Sylvan Libraries. I would agree with that, and one of the things that they can use Sylvan Library for is not necessarily to uh, to draw extra cards, but to use it almost like a free Sensei's Divining Top, which helps set up their Cascades, and it helps set up Dark Confidant next turn. And against the control deck, where life total doesn't matter... Draw Sylvan as many Library... cards as you want. I, I can't think of many games where I've lost the game having Sylvan Library on board and survive. I probably, on one hand, usually when Sylvan Library hits the board, if I don't brick totally on those cards, I usually draw kind of like four four cards is usually my average against those decks. Yeah, four cards is good. It's, it's, yeah, it's pretty good. It's better than Recall if you're getting four cards instead of three. I mean, mind you, it costs a lot of life, but you know what? Yeah, who cares? Whatever. Um, one of the ways I think, again, that's strong to attack these lists is because they're running so much hand disruption with for Liliana, him, Thoughtseize, etc., is uh, there's a good chance you won't have many cards in your hand, and Snaring Bridge is definitely a good option here. Yeah, and saying that Abrupt Decay is an answer to Ensnaring Bridge is not an argument, because they won't always necessarily have the Abrupt Decay. And even if they do, who says that that's the target that they want to hit? Yeah, there's a good chance that you'll have something else that they want to hit with that. Uh, another thing here is that with uh, with Punishing Fire, if they do not have a uh, a Grove out or all their Groves are tapped, removing that Punishing Fire removes a major threat, whether you do that with Deathrite Shaman or you just are playing Graveyard Hate mainboard. I'm not saying bring in Graveyard Hate, but something like Deathrite Shaman that just happens to get it. That's super positive, because Punishing Fire is a, is a major deal in a deck like this, where they might be doing that two or three times a turn. Yeah, so, I mean, this deck can really take advantage of Liliana the Veil more so than the Shardless Bug deck can, because of the fact that you can discard your own Punishing Fire or Life from Loam or whatever, and you can just get it right back. So I think this deck is a little bit more closer to the control spectrum of midrange, more so than the, more so than the Bug deck, in a way. Just because of the fact of if you're running the Punishing Fire engine, you're going for the long game. I mean, you're not... I mean, I, at least the Punishing Jun decks that I've played against do not win on turn, you know, 5 or turn 7. I mean, usually you're grinding... You know, you have a Liliana, you might have a, a Tarmogoyf on board, and you're just grinding out those Punishing Fires. And there's definitely nothing wrong with that. Now, another thing about these decks is this one is running uh, a couple basics, but... They have, again, very, very greedy mana bases, so attacking their mana base, quite strong. Uh, they're also playing, this deck is playing three Wasteland, which means that your Wastelands will be strong because they are weakening their mana base to weaken yours. Uh, again, Blood Moon not necessarily as good here because they do have a lot of red options, though Blood Moon also hits Grove of the Burn Willows, so that's kind of a trade-off. But in this deck, as an example, they're playing two swamps, one forest, and that's all their basics. Uh, so attacking non-basics would certainly be strong here. 
Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of these same general points kind of come down because of the fact that the core is black, green, and your splash color. Uh, a lot of the strategies are going to be the same. So, Blood Moon, as we just said, was good. Rest in Peace is also very good. So, shutting off, Death Rush Shaman and Tarmogoyf. So, they have a 3-2 haste and now a 2-1. Not as good. Uh, rest in Peace also shuts off the Punishing Fire engine. It shuts off... What else did it shut off in the stack? Loam? Something from the... Yeah, it shuts off the Loam, if they're running the Loam. Which could be a big deal if you're running uh, more non-basics than you should be, because Loaming back Wasteland, pretty solid play. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to attack it. So also, too, playing bigger creatures in this deck. So the only big creature in this deck, just like the other deck, is Tarmogoyf. So, I mean, if you can land a Nither Aliquary that can stay big, pretty good. Uh, you can also sweep all of their creatures, again, with either a Terminus. Uh, Engineer Explosives on two against this deck is actually fucking bonkers. Um, lingering Souls to out-attrition them. Young yeah, Pyromancer, if you're going to talk about tokens. Yep, they they are not going to be able to block all of those tokens. Pyroclasm, Supreme Verdict. Um, humility against this deck, because of the fact... Even though you have the Cascade, fine. Great, but they're not cascading into draw three. Humility here in this matchup is actually very, very good. Uh, Chains of Mephistopheles, unfortunately, this deck is no good because if they have the Sylvan Library out, they just choose not to uh, choose to engage in the trigger and you just... Otherwise, that would be there. very bad for them. It is fun when you occasionally hit the player who does not know that Sylvan Library says draw and not look at and they do it into Chains of Mephistopheles and you just... It's, it's like a really good grindstone. It, oh, yes, it's a really good grindstone. So the thing that you have to watch out for as the, say, the control deck playing against the stack is they have access to Red Elemental Blast, which is really good against you. They have access to Pernicious Deed, Cross and Grip. Like, a lot of, again, Jund has a lot of good answers against the control deck, and it has also some very good answers against the aggro decks. So you just need to be careful and, and know the cards that they could bring in and just kind of play around them. Or at least don't play as far into them as you possibly could. So as we notice, the kind of core of these decks happens to be... Again, I'm just repeating this because these are the cards you want to attack if you're trying to broadly shore up your matchup. Him to Torok, Thoughtseize, Dark Confidant, Deathright Shaman, Tarmogoyf, Liliana, you know, etc. Last but not least, that I think is the most the most underrepresented, underrepresented archetype in the format right now is Junk, or say like Dark Maverick, or whatever you want to call it. My favorite archetype. However, I'll let Sam talk a little bit first. Well, I'm a big fan of Junk as well. It used to be my, uh, my go-to deck. This is, again, green and black is, uh, are two of your three colors, meaning that you're going to have a lot of the same stuff. You're going to be having the Hymn to Turox, the Thought Seizes. You're going to be playing Goyf, maybe Liliana of the Veil. Uh, and with the addition of white, you get Swords to Plowshares as your creature removal, if that's your choice. Maybe uh, some of them play some different removal. Uh, Knight of the Reliquary, which is excellent. Uh, besides being huge, it means that you can play a toolbox of lands. Uh, and speaking of toolboxes, you also have the option of Green Sun Zenith. And that means you can have a big toolbox of Hate Bears, especially things like Gaddock Teague. So they have very similar but different options. So definitely the uh, the bug deck and the jun deck are quite a bit different from the way the junk decks have been shaping up over the last say year and a bit. I mean, I I'm a pretty big proponent of 
junk just because of the answers that it has to all the different uh, archetypes in Legacy. So, for example, so I mean, Black Green is still going to give you the same options from all three of these uh, major different decks that are quote unquote mid range in the format. Now, so I mean, junk, so you still have your Black Green, your Hand Disruption, you have your Removal. So, the thing is with White. What do you gain with white? What's the advantage to playing white? And a lot of people actually have basically said nothing because obviously they haven't been playing the deck. It hasn't been putting up good finishes just because of the fact that, well, a lot of people like to go with blue and hedge their bets. You like to have answers, like you like to have Brainstorm. A lot of people like to have Force of Will just to have the edge against combo. I think that's, with the resurgence in combo, that's perhaps why Jund has kind of waned a little bit just because you don't have as good of a game against combo. So junk with white, you gain the best removal in the game, Swords of Plowshares. You get some of the best creatures, uh, neither Reliquary. And you get very good hate bears and attrition elements. So Gattactique is a very hard piece for combo to beat. They must bounce it before they decide to go off. Thalia really slows them down. Aethersworn Canonist, again, really slows down the combo decks. And you have other attrition elements like Lingering Souls to really like grind out your opponent. You could play Rest in Peace if you wanted to, if you really needed to hate on those graveyard-based decks, even though you yourself would be a little bit mucked by that. Um, you have access to Disenchant if you needed it. There's, you have a slew of cards that, uh, that are quite good against the format. So one thing I think is very interesting about the junk decks is that a lot of the junk decks have been different decks that have slowly merged into junk decks, which it's been things like Death and Taxes, which became green in taxes, and then someone said, well, why don't I just add black to that? That's pretty good. Or Dead Guy Ale, which is essentially black death and taxes, black-white death and taxes. Add some green for some bigger creatures. Uh, you had things like Bant and New Horizons that switched blue into black because it's very strong. Uh, you see a few people playing Junk, playing Natural Order, essentially taking the Bant and No Rug decks and just, again, switching out one color for black because black has so many strong options. So I think it's particularly interesting that while Junk is only one deck in Dr. Evil air quotes, it's evolved from a lot of decks, so you'll see a lot of different ways that people go about building their Junk decks. Sometimes you'll see Junk decks, for example, with four Mother of Runes in them, or you'll see them with, you know, with the Thalias, or you'll see them be more just kind of straight-up aggro decks with a few black discard spells. So I think the main distinction between Junk and Dark Maverick in kind of, you know, again, Dr. Evil air quotes, is Dark Maverick is going to be primarily a green-white deck in the the main board form of it. Uh, it's going to be running your uh, Mother of Runes package. Most Junk decks do not run Mother of Runes. Whereas in the board, the Dark Maverick deck can bring in, say, Abrupt Decay. It can bring in Hand Disruption. It can bring in all... It usually brings in its black cards, as opposed to Junk, which is primarily a black-green with a splash white instead of a green-white with a splash of black. Essentially the difference. Um, I'm playing Greens and Zenith in my deck. I know a lot of people are probably still playing Greens and Zenith, or some people are still playing Greens and Zenith. Some people have dropped it. I think Greens and Zenith against the rest of the mid-range decks uh, is very good. Uh, basically, I have more Deathrite Shamans, I have more Tarmogoyce than you, I have more Knight of the Reliquaries, I can go fetch my Scavenging Ooze, and again, it's about selection. Being able to select my threat against other mid-range decks usually gives me a bit of an advantage. Uh, I usually do very well against Jund, just because I have bigger creatures, I have bigger threats, I have better removal, and I'm playing more card selection. So I've never had a problem with Jund. Uh, Bug is a little bit different just because they can get ahead of you with, say, 
you know, the ancestral vision play sometimes just blows you out. And you know what? That's the way it is. Well, an Aether Sworn Cannonist is uh, is fairly good against them. While it doesn't stop Cascade, it does stop things. It does stop them from being able to play multiple spells of turn, which is relevant in a deck that's doing a lot of value plays. That it's you know it's doing things like him to Turok, and then I'll play a dude. And you know if they only get him to Turok or only get a dude, that's not terrible against them. It might not be the best option, but if, for example, you happen to be playing at main deck, that's not a bad thing to play down on uh, turn two. No, not at all. I mean, remember, I mean, these the key to beating like a combo deck, like we were talking about before, especially when you're playing a mid range deck, is a mix of, you know, pressure as well as hate. Especially if you're not playing blue, it's pressure and hate. So the Jun deck has, you know, you have some hate in the form of I have a whole shit ton of discard spells. Great. That's that's excellent. Against the combo decks that require a certain card density, you're going to do fairly decent against sometimes. However, with Junk, you're able to go turn one, discard spell, stop you from going off. Turn two, play Hate Bear. Stabilize. So then once I have my Hate Bear down, okay, now I can go, okay, now I can go get more cards, stop you from bouncing my Hate Bear, and then I can play different Hate Bears. So the key to beating a combo deck with Junk is, say, laying down... You know, turn one Thoughtseize, turn two Thalia, and then say if you can, you Grins and Zenith for Galactique at some point. Yeah, and we said uh, that having having two bears is just stupid strong against combo. So the question is, why haven't people been playing it? And I think it's just because it doesn't have... It, people maybe perceive it doesn't have the game against combo. Uh, your control matchup is, again, based on the... the depending on the control deck, is still not as wonderful as you would like it to be. However, cards like Pernicious Deed and Galactic and Thalia are still good against the combo decks. Uh, I've actually been thinking about, or not just thinking, uh, some people have also been trying on my uh, request, Luxidon Smiter. Yeah, that guy's solid, and uh, very strong in that he does not require the graveyard to be big. Correct. So, again, like we're saying, oh, how to beat this deck is to play Rest in Peace. Now, again, Rest in Peace is very good against Junk. Uh, if you're playing the Lingering Souls token, takes that out of contention. Uh, Life from the Loam, Deathrite Shaman, Tarmogoyf, Nether Reliquary. Hitting quite a few cards. And I'll be honest, against my opponents who play Rest in Peace quite often, I'm boarding out my Tarmogoyfs and my Nether Reliquaries just because of the fact that, you know, they're not quite... 2-2 two, two for 3, not great. Even, like, tutoring can be good, great. However, sometimes not quite good enough. So, Luxon Smiter. So what does Luxon and Smiter do for you as a card? Well, first of all, against the aggro decks or the decks playing cheap counters that are trying to like waste you out of the game or whatever, Luxon and Smiter is a one white green, and you get a four four. That is uncounterable. And if your opponent would make you discard it, you can instead put it into play. So it's not quite as good as I initially thought it was, because of the fact that I thought, oh, I can just use my own Liliana put into play. However, after reading the card, yeah, after reading the card a second time, I said, oh, well, this card is still good. So a lot of the other decks are running, you know, him to Torok and Liliana. So suddenly, if you have a 4-4 for free, that's pretty darn good. Um, I was playing Lingering Souls for the longest time against those decks, and it's, it's kind of the same thing, except there's a mana investment with Lingering Souls. I still have to flash back the Lingering Souls to get that value. Whereas here, it's suddenly there's a beater that is actually bigger than every creature in the format, except, say, a large nether or 
a Tarmogoyf. And many times it might be bigger than Goyf to start with, and if they do something like on turn two, rather than playing their Goyf, they play their Him, and you get one of these guys down, that means, even if they went first, it means on your turn two, you have a 4-4 four, four, and two mana. That's some pretty solid position to be in, because even if they do play a Goyf next turn, their Goyf is, first of all, you're already going to have hit them for four, and their Goyf is probably going to be right around as big as your Luxodon Smiter. And recall, against like the decks playing Lightning Bolt right now and all of that, so you're, it's still going to quote-unquote die to Abrupt Decay, as we all know, but it doesn't die to Lightning Bolt. That's a pretty a big, big deal. deal. Like, that means that Rug does not have many ways to take care of it. It requires five mana to Punishing Fires, which is, again, that's an entire turn. So, so this, this kind of design has got me thinking about you know, how to next-level your opponents who are playing hate against you. So I mean, if you are a mid-range player, think about what what is it? What are people doing that we just we told people how to beat mid-range? So how are you going to beat those cards that we just told people that beat you? So card selection, junk. In my junk deck, I've run three Sylvan Library. A lot of people were like, "Well, why do you run three Sylvan Library?" Well, it's quite simple. Sylvan Library is amazing in a mid-range deck. You don't have access to Brainstorm, you don't have access to Ancestral Visions, you only have Dark Confidant, which can be killed by Swords of Plowshares, Lightning Bolt, Punishing Fire, whatever. You need something that's permanent base that's going to sit there and draw you cards. And a lot of people are like, but what about Sensei's Divining Top? Sensei's Divining Top, in this particular deck, you want to be playing spells. Yeah, you want to be using your mana. Turns. So it's essentially, it's a Sensei's Divining Top that is bad in that you can only do it at the beginning of your turn, but it's good in that you can draw cards off it as much as you want. And it doesn't cost any mana. Exactly. Beyond the initial investment. Uh, and card selection, Green Sun Zenith is also the other very strong card selection in a deck like Junk. Exactly. Being able to tutor up Gatitigue, um, being able to, say, turn one, you know, remove your guy, turn two, go tutor up my own Deathrite Shaman if I needed to, would be, and has been, quite good. Certainly. So I, I think we've... I, I know that you're a big Junk fan, so I'm sure we could go on for hours about Junk if you wanted to. Oh, okay, we can. So let's uh, let's continue. No, uh, basically the point of the so kind of to wrap up the mid range decks. You know, if we want to go through like the base of the mid range deck over the past year has been the abrupt decay deathrite shaman combo. So how do you actually beat that if you're another deck? Get around the abrupt decay deathrite shaman combo. You can also beat them by attacking their mana base. Their game plan is to control the game through turns kind of like three through eight. Uh, playing big, balmy spells and big control elements will best them, as will attacking the mana base kind of on the earlier end of the spectrum. And as we've Sam, said, attacking any... the graveyard is also very good against almost all of their green spells, really. Correct. And that about wraps up our discussion of midrange. We always appreciate your feedback. Email us at everydayeternalcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash everydayeternalpodcast. Or tweet to us at eternalmtg. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.